episode 149, Tip of the Sword. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a December 28th, 2011 broadcast from the Kansas Museum of History. In this series, we talk to museum experts to get the story behind the story about artifacts from Kansas history. Five hundred years ago, a rich Spaniard led an army across what would become New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas in search of a mythical city of gold. Coronado never found the gold, but he did forever alter the course of Western history. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine a rusted sword. According to legend, the sword was dropped during this fantastic expedition, only to be found 500 years later on the dusty plains of Kansas. Did Coronado drop his sword while on the first road trip in American history? Then we go behind the scenes with museum staff to clean a train. Thousands of people visit the museum each year, All those people can be rough on sensitive artifacts that are centuries old. Find out what special skills and materials are needed to clean rare artifacts. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Prairie Dog Town, an odd petting zoo near Oakley, Kansas. Did White enjoy a visit to this veritable freak show while headed to Colorado for summer vacations? But first, tip of the sword. You're all right, but I'm here, darling, to enjoy the bar. Hey! You're all right, but I'm here, darling, to enjoy the bar. Good afternoon, Blair. Good afternoon, Merle. Today we are discussing a sword, and it's probably one of the more famous swords in our collection. Um, The sword actually may have been used on one of the most legendary expeditions in history. Uh, Almost 470... Your Christmas shopping? Yeah, not quite. (laughs) Almost 470 years ago, um, some believe this sword was used in the Coronado Expedition. Um, It's a steel sword, uh, it's a straight blade, it's got a pointed tip, and on edge on both sides. However, it does lack a handle, so sometimes it doesn't quite look like what you think a sword looks like. It doesn't have a handle, probably because it was made out of wood or something, and it's just worn off over the years. All right, Blair, so for the first question, for years people speculated this sword was used during the Coronado Expedition. Who was Coronado, and what was he doing in Kansas? Coronado was a Spanish conquistador who had come to Mexico about 1522, I think it was, and became a prominent landowner there, governor of a province, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who started hearing stories about cities of gold in the north. Was curious enough that he put together an expedition to come up north to see if he could find these so-called cities of gold. Uh uh, That eventually brought him to what we now know as Kansas which leaves us one of the big legacies. We have a lot of places where Coronado and Quivira and a few other yep. Spanish names come into play. So uh, um, 
So he went all over the Southwest, right? He's coming all over the Southwest, coming up out of yeah, Mexico, much of, into what would be now New Mexico and Arizona. Probably followed the little Arkansas or Arkansas, whichever one you want to call it. Uh, at the river, it's a river, yes. <laughs> so, how many people were part of this expedition, and was it like sponsored by the government of Spain, or was it just Coronado's own? I want to go find a city of gold. I believe it was sponsored by the Spanish government. It included an army, and I'm not sure how big the army was at one point. Uh, It got to the point, though, that Coronado sort of gradually got discouraged that he sent the army away, or most of it, and cut the expedition size down so they could continue traveling and not have to worry about foraging off the land for mm-hmm. the army. It just got further and further north, and more and more they realized that these Indians that they saw didn't match the descriptions of what they were hearing. They didn't look like they had gold or had ever seen gold. Or mm-hmm. uh, And finally he, he realized that this is not going to be a successful expedition. No sign of gold anywhere. They didn't find. And I know it sounds goofy that they're on a quest for the Golden City, but yeah, you know, this is like, what did you say, 1500s? It's 1500s, and they've and seen some things in Mexico that could. It's told plausible. Them that it was plausible, yeah. And they called it, they called the city Quivira, right? Quivira. <laughs> so this particular sword, it was discovered in Gray County, Kansas, which, was, it, which is southwest Kansas. Yes. Um, near Cimarron, not too far from Dodge City. Not far from the Little Arkansas or, for that matter, the Santa Fe Trail. Right. So it was discovered in 1886. What were the circumstances of the sword's discovery, and what led people to believe that it belonged to Coronado? The man who discovered it just simply saw it, I think. It was partly sticking out of some grasses. Uh, it's like Excalibur. Excalibur, yeah. Pulled it out and took a look at it and immediately... Saw the Spanish inscription on it and immediately, Coronado, this has to be Coronado. Right. And they also saw a name on it that they read as Gallego. Well, coincidentally. Which, coincidentally, there was a Juan Gallego who was a part of Coronado's expedition. Uh-huh. And they thought, this is Juan Gallego's sword. And everybody bought that for the longest period of time. That It said Gallego on it. So yeah, so you know if, if you if that's actually you know I will tell you I've looked at the sword and Gallego it's it's plausible, plausible that you could see that and if you see that and you you know you really do find it just out in the field somewhere yeah. um, it's plausible and if you know enough about Coronado you know that yeah he could have been there it could have right because they found party. it yes along the Arkansas River yeah. which you said was part of his route yeah. he may have actually traveled through that yeah. area today most people doubt the Coronado connection. Um, They don't think it's true. Who first questioned the claim and what did they use as evidence? Because you've told us why it was or why why it was believed to be Coronado's sword and eventually somebody said, hold up, wait a minute. This is is why it's not. And it may have been before this, but at least in the 1980s when we were, this museum was going up and we were getting ready for the gallery, that's when Questions really started going, and photographs were exchanged, and experts looked at the sword, Mm -hmm. and they realized there's nothing about the sword in their estimation that says it's a 16th century sword. It's more of an 18th century sword. Mm -hmm. And that Gallego on there couldn't have been more wrong. It really said Solingen, Mm -hmm. which is a prominent European sword maker, German name, but they made it in various places in 
Europe, including Barcelona and Toledo, I believe, in Spain, has nothing to do with anybody named Juan Gallego. Uh And also, because it doesn't have the hilt, the handle, it offers the suggestion that this was used as a trade sword, because they would bring these over by the barrel full without the handles and use them as trade between the native peoples and others. I see. And so since it's so close to the Santa Fe Trail, it's thought, yes, it could have been something that was used on the Santa Fe Trail or traded with somebody along the trail and lost there in Gray County mm-hmm. in eight, well before 1886. And when you think about it, since it was half exposed, that makes a little more sense, too, because that means it's only about a 100-year-old sword in 1886 and not a, what would be, 300-year-old sword. Right. Which, if it had fallen into the ground, it would 300 years would be pretty yeah, decomposed, yes. pretty rusted. It was rusted, but it wasn't rusted to the point where it was... Not 300 years yeah, old. 300 yeah, it, years wasn't, <laughs> it was still in reasonably good shape. How do you think, how do you, Blair, in your honest opinion, how do you think it ended up? Because here's why I ask, like, it is, it's one story that is Coronado's. It's another story that it was like a trade item that was dropped. My my feeling, third story, is like it's like planted. It never was never was found. Maybe this guy came up, found a sword, bought it somewhere, and said, "I got a good story to throw on this." Could have been anything. I didn't could have filed been, yes. down some of the inscriptions yeah. to make them look. Yeah, it, it could have been anything. It could have been somebody who was given the one's sword blade, and then who knows? He could have been robbed along the trail, and various loot was dropped around some places. He, he could have lost it somewhere from his his horses or other animals. It's it's hard to say exactly why, one reason why, but yeah. But Juan Gallego, no, it's not Juan Gallego. <laughs> um, but that's the saying on it is pretty good too, though. Yeah, what is what is it? It does have I, really cool I, engraving. I am not going to try to say this in Spanish because I would botch it completely. I know that the translation though is. Draw me not without reason, sheathe me not without honor. Which there's another version of that that I like just as much that uh, Kirk Meacham, the director of the Historical Society back in 1941, told a group here in Topeka and it got quoted in the local paper that he was showing the sword to somebody and this little boy came up and wanted to see it. And Meacham asked the kid if he, could, he knew what the sword said. and said he didn't really know how to translate it completely, but he really had kind of an idea uh-huh. what it was. And the boy said, don't take it out until they jump on you. Then don't put it back until you beat hell out of them. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a loose interpretation. Yes, that's yeah. very loose. Yeah, but it makes more sense. Yes. <laughs> In 1540, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado led a force of 1,600 into the uncharted wilderness. This expedition is the subject of today's Kanza quiz. For two years, Coronado's army marched into the North American interior. These men were the first Europeans to lay eyes on the Grand Canyon or see a strange beast that today we call a bison. After 3,000 miles in an alien land, the expedition made a turn and headed home to Spanish Mexico. Can you name the small Kansas town? 
commonly believed to be the farthest point of this incredible expedition. Inside the Kansas Museum of History resides a huge gallery filled with artifacts that tell the story of Kansas. Each year, roughly 44,000 people roam through this gallery. All those people can have a negative effect on the artifacts. Today, we go behind the scenes with Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and Conservation Technician Nikayla Zimmerman to discuss how a museum deals with the hazardous impact of, well, people. All right, so we are sitting in a train, in a drover's car, which... Uh, actually is located inside the gallery of the Kansas Museum of History. We have an entire train. There's a train engine and two train cars behind it. And we're sitting in one right now. And there's a reason we're sitting in in a train car right now. It's because we're going to talk a little bit about what it takes to maintain a train car when it's inside of a museum. Uh, Rebecca, uh, the main gallery, which is where the train is located here, is designed to tell the story of Kansas history using artifacts. Can you describe to the listeners a little bit what the main gallery of the Kansas Museum of History, what it looks like? It's about 30,000 square feet of collections and display panels, and the collections are cover the wide gamut of everything from really small little things that you might have seen in a house in the 19th century to present-day pieces, some, some very big things and some really small things. And uh, the small things are almost all exclusively inside, a dis in dis inside display cases. Mm -hmm. The big things, like the train, are not. Mm -hmm. So they are exposed to um, the visitors and also the elements in the gallery. Although we have a very nice, highly filtered air system here that filters out a lot of particulate matter and, and keeps it fairly clean. But we still have things that get dirty. Sure, sure. And, I mean, there is... There's a train, like I was saying. There is a cabin that's in here. Oh, half of a log cabin. Half of a log cabin got <laughs> sawed in half, apparently. There's a there's a teepees, a couple Indian huts mm -hmm. in here. I mean, it is a big space. Very big. Mm -hmm. Big space. A lot of stuff in mm -hmm. here. And, and one of the things that we have to do is the exposed artifacts are exposed because of their size, but also to give visitors a bit more uh, in-depth experience. Like you can see, you can actually look into the log cabin. So that was a conscious decision that was made when the museum gallery was built, but that causes us long-term issues in terms of keeping it clean. Mm -hmm. Nikayla, thousands of people come through this main gallery each year. What is the impact of these people? Well, I hate to say it, but people are a little gross. Yeah. <laughs> they bring a lot of stuff in with them. If they're tracking in dirt from outside, they bring in skin cells and hair and things that pests like to eat and use as nesting material, so we have to be careful and clean up for that. Um, people also, they like to touch things, they like to experience things, so we have to worry about that with some of our bigger pieces. And uh, people can be a little clumsy sometimes, even if we don't mean to be, so we bump into things and that can be damaging to an artifact too. Mm -hmm. So there's things that are just inherently a problem with it, no matter what kind of building you are, you're gonna have mice. Yep. You may have bugs. You could have the potential for water pipes breaking. There's your yep. standard threats. And then there's the threats of any public building mm -hmm. where there's just tons of people bringing in all of their human 
cells and Smuts. sheddings. Right. <laughs> and, and we know it's going to happen. Schmutzy breath. <laughs> we, right. just have to, we just have to deal with it. Nikayla, we use some rather non-traditional materials for cleaning the artifacts in the gallery. Uh, what are some samples? What are some of these? What are some of these non-traditional materials, and why do we use them? Well, I think people would be surprised to see the things we actually do use to clean because they may be things that they have in their own home. It's not necessarily really specialized, highly, you know, secretive tools. Um, when the curators are cleaning the train, they use a vacuum cleaner that's pretty much just like the one you have at home. I mean, it's, they aren't running it over the ground, but it's kind of one of those jetpack ones with the wand, you know. Mm -hmm. And we also it straps to your back. It's awesome. Right. It's like a rocketeer. <laughs> uh, we also we have one for um, cleaning textiles that um, is smaller. It's got smaller tools that attach to it for more delicate cleaning. And we use a slightly different technique. You know, we don't just put it directly on the surface of something because mm -hmm. that can damage it. Um, so we use vacuum cleaners. We use um, microfiber dusting cloths, um, which they started out selling to clean the interiors of cars, but um, they work really well on cleaning trains and artifacts. The dusting cloths we use, we just use dry. We don't put anything on them. Rebecca, we're going to go around the gallery a little bit and talk about some high, some, some high points that are more challenging to clean. Um, but while we're sitting in the train, which is the biggest artifact in the, in the, in the gallery, what so can you talk us, can you walk us through what's required to clean a train? Well, um, you need a lot of microfiber cloths. <laughs> and a harness. A lot of them. <laughs> and really big ladders. Um, we've kind of got this down to a science, so we split up and it usually takes about three of us to clean the train. I don't know, maybe an hour tops. Uh, somebody grabs a, a microfiber um, dust rag on a long pole and cleans the top of the engine or the locomotive and um, then somebody has a ladder with the jetpack vacuum and they climb all the way to the top and do the tops of the cars uh -huh. and then we actually go inside the cars do also and do spot cleaning in here I mean you can see if you saw us cleaning it you'd see people on their hands and knees too on the coal car actually dusting around the coal because it gets <laughs> it's dirty. It's literally dust. You are dusting around coal and sometimes mm -hmm. probably even, I have vacuumed rocks. Yeah. There is a track that has uh -huh. the, that's lined with rocks below the, below the train car and dust bunnies collect up on them. So I have vacuumed dust bunnies. I have yeah. vacuumed rocks. <laughs> so we are standing in front of one of the um, more difficult areas to clean. We are standing in front of the Buffalo diorama which kind of simulates the landscape of Kansas prior to white settlement, I guess. And uh, it's a diorama with a giant stuffed bison and actual blades of grass mm -hmm. and a mound with little taxi taxidermied um, prairie dogs. And dirt. And dirt. And, lots of dirt. <laughs> and it's real dirt, so it's meant to look pretty authentic. And it's real a, grass. There's a rattlesnake there, too. Right. It's the rattlesnake. Yeah. It's real grass, though not living grass. Uh -huh. um, and the thing about this is this was installed in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, recently you had to actually clean this diorama. Yeah, it was getting a little dusty and the grasses were getting dusty without wind blowing dirt on them. So um, Blair Tarr, whom our listeners know, um, and I crawled into the diorama one day when we were closed and we very, very carefully brushed the grasses uh -huh. uh, with a brush holding uh, like a soft bristle brush and then holding a vacuum nozzle next to it. <laughs> now, um, there are a lot of blades of grass here, so we just hit the high points. Right. Um, but uh, my favorite 
thing that I will carry to my grave, this mental picture of Blair vacuuming the bison's butt <laughs> and dusting it with a dust rag. Uh -huh. It was hilarious. We are seated in the uh, Dorothy Dorothy's Diner, which is kind of a, a replica 1950s diner, um, sort of alludes to Valentine diners, which were popular in Kansas. Um, so the diner requires a little bit of maintenance, and Nikila, you have a story uh, associated to uh, to some of part w a little bit of what what you have to do um, uh, when you maintain this gallery. Right. Well, the diner has a counter that people are really not allowed to go behind. But you find a lot of trash back there because people right. will throw, you know, brochures and stuff Dang. or pencils, and they do get back there. Junior high kids. Right. They get a little crazy. So um, we have one of our one of our devices that logs the temperature and humidity in the gallery because we monitor that for the the maintenance of the artifacts. We have to keep it at a certain temperature and humidity level. So we have one of those loggers behind the counter. So I came out one Monday morning, jumped behind the counter to get the, the data logger, and when I came back, I noticed that there was a sugar container sitting on the counter that looked like it had something in it. And at first, I just thought it was the reflection of the counter coming up through the bottom of the glass, but what it actually was was a piece of bacon <laughs> that someone had kind of rolled up and somehow managed to stick in the bottom of this container. And to this day, I cannot figure out how they made it this far into the gallery with a piece of bacon because mm -hmm. it was like cooked bacon. Right, right. But yet appropriate for a diner. <laughs> I'm Merle Riedel with the answer to today's Kanza quiz. We asked you to name the modern town built near the turnaround point of Coronado's massive expedition. The answer is Lindsburg, Kansas. To be more precise though, the farthest point is believed to have been Coronado Heights, a small hill northwest of Lindsburg. It was here that Coronado finally gave up on his quest to find the golden city of Quivira. Today, the site is a historical park in which spectators, much like Coronado 500 years ago, can view the high plains for miles. Now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Exhibits Director Chris Prouty. Hello. And Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. Today, we connect White, a small town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Prairie Dog Town, an odd private zoo located near Oakley, Kansas. Chris, could you give us some background on Prairie Dog Town? Sure. Located in far western Kansas, Prairie Dog Town can be found just off Interstate Highway 70 near the small town of Oakley, which boasts a population of 2,000. I-70 travelers usually achieve awareness of Prairie Dog Town by observing a series of slightly disturbing <laughs> billboards with messages that read, world's largest prairie dog, right? live six-legged steer, <laughs> or pet the rattlesnakes. Uh, sounds like a place for the kids. Well, technically a private zoo, prairie, down, prairie Dog Town is really a mashup of two more established traditions, the petting zoo and the freak show. Indeed. Uh -huh. 
Popular with carnivals and circuses from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, the freak show featured genetic anomalies and exhibited deformed animals. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Yikes. No. Yeah, Prairie Dog Town proprietor Larry Farmer was well aware of this freak attraction when he established the site in the early 1970s to support his Gas station. Mm -hmm. I guess not a lot of people <laughs> buying gas in the 1970s. I don't know. Well, it was so cheap back then. <laughs> right. Exactly. You had to have an attraction. <laughs> so he filled it with live six-legged cattle, miniature donkeys, two-headed calves, jackalopes, and other <laughs> farmland mutants. <laughs> I love the idea of like a specialized cate category of mutants, like farmland <laughs> mutants. And these are like tiny, tiny donkeys, two-headed calves. Uh, Did you look at the pictures online of like the six-legged cow? No, oh, seen it's it. tragic it's, looking. It's so sad. It's just. It's but the cow right. doesn't mind. I mean, the cow visitors are like cows. Don't care if they got six the, legs or four. But the jackalope's not exactly real. That's not a mutant, is it? That's not a real. I hope nope. it's taxidermy. It is taxidermy. Okay. They're not live. They're, those are stuffed. But the, actually, the idea of a jackalope is a long-established concept, and it's based off of some disease that rabbits can get where they grow tumors. Out of their okay. face, and people have uh, people have said that's where the idea of the jackalope oh comes from. Fascinating. This is a disturbing. <laughs> but you want to go see it, right? No, I don't want to go see it. Well, you have to be careful not to trip over the hundreds of dirt mounds built by tiny prairie rodents known as prairie dogs. And oh yeah, that uh, that world's largest prairie dog. It's a statue. Yeah, hope, sorry to spoil it's everyone's statue. It's a statue. It's pretty lame. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chris. Uh, now to the game. As a contestant, Chris, mm -hmm. you will hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and Prairie Dog Town. All right. You must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Nikayla, you can go first. Okay, well... This is the lamest solution I've ever come up with for Six Degrees. Um, as Chris mentioned, Prairie Dog Town is located along Interstate Highway 70, the main thoroughfare of Kansas. Mm -hmm. um, the Yellow Brick Road, if you will. The Yellow Brick Road, yeah, Main Street, USA. Um, I-70 is part of the United States Interstate Highway System, which we know was um, kind of established and developed by President Dwight D. Eisenhower, a Kansan himself. Uh -huh. um, and it is thought that the first stretch of that interstate was laid in Kansas, um, or the interstate system in general was laid in Kansas. Mm -hmm. um, Eisenhower was a friend of William Lindsay White. They were kind of golfing pals. We've talked about this in the podcast before. And, mm -hmm. of course, William Lindsay was the son of William Allen White. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Uh, so now my turn. In 1980, that does sound plausible. Yeah. It does. It does a little, a little too plausible. A little too many. Uh, we've talked about this before. I'm trying to trying mm -hmm. to build false uh, false you structure. I don't listeners. know. They in know. in 1981, the television series Ripley's Believe It or Not purchased Larry Farmer's six-legged cows. He goes through several of them, but he purchased one of his six-legged cows at the price of three thousand dollars. Pretty good. Pretty good price. I guess it goes up the more legs you have. Um, founded by John Ripley in the 1920s, Ripley's Believe It or Not began as a radio show that reveled in the freakish. To start his bizarre media business, though, Ripley allied with the most powerful publisher of his day, William Randolph Hearst. A rich Democrat from the East Coast, Hearst was the perfect rival for William Allen White, a middle-income Republican from rural Kansas. 
Always the anti-Hearst, in 1936, White actually told the New York Tribune, I mostly enjoy nonfiction ramblings for my reading pleasure, but when the mood for fiction but when I'm in the mood for fiction, I pick up a copy of Hearst's <laughs> New York Journal. <laughs> so there you have it. Wow. Um, Chris, you know, that's, that's a tough one, but I, I really like your scenario. Um, uh, it's just an entertaining story. It is. Uh, yeah. love the the truth is often highly entertaining. I love the quotes. <laughs> uh, and so I'm going to pick that one, although I really don't know. Yeah, mine is false. No kidding. Yes, yes. And wow. I completely made up that quote. I feel as though did I really? did. Yeah. I said, what would William Allen White sound like if he was writing something oh, I was about say, this purse. is almost too good to, uh, to be made up. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. Totally wow. Made up. Yeah, all right. You know, that whole um, him selling animals to Ripley's, though, is true. It is. And they are. They do. They oh, so wait this is in really the wings. a trick question. Yeah. There's portions, fragments of it <laughs> yeah. that are true. I mean, okay. I completely made up a quote. But sure, <laughs> sure. So I think the six-legged cow went to Florida. They had another animal that recently died that went to California. And the next animal that dies has already been purchased for the Las Vegas Ripley's Believe in it. Right. Oh. These six-legged cows. That's a hot commodity. Interestingly enough, you came across another reference to sort of um, the prairie dog town cast-off, right? Yeah. Uh, involving the actual prairie dogs. You want to tell us that story? Yeah. So I guess there was this uh, wealthy man from Kansas City who kind of had had some legal trouble of his own in, in the past, but <laughs> apparently he tries to make good now by giving a lot of money to charities and trying to sure. do those things. So. In the 1980s, he decided that he was going to contribute a prairie dog colony to the Kansas City Zoo. Because that's what great philanthropists do. Right. They donate they prairie dog colonies. Establish yeah. prairie dog colonies. <laughs> yes. Isn't it the first thing on your list to do when you're a millionaire? Carnegie so. built libraries, and this guy establishes prairie dog towns. So apparently he bought his prairie dogs from Prairie Dog Town out at Oakley. Mm-hmm. Brought them to Kansas City, and instead of waiting and presenting them to the zoo, he just took them to the zoo and released them into the prairie dog town, and they killed the prairie dogs that were already in the town. Ooh, right. The yeah. leisurely zoo prairie dogs can't compete with the, the wild carnivorous prairie, prairie dogs. Freak show prairie dogs. <laughs> now, granted, that came from the pitch. I don't know how true it is, but... It's out there. All right. Creepy. Well, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? You bet. For the next episode, we ring in the new year by connecting White to Father Time, a mythical figure of Greek origin. Father Time is usually depicted with the rather odd combination of an hourglass, a scythe, and a baby. Come back in two weeks when we connect White to Father Time. Was White like the rest of us and just assume that Father Time was Santa Claus in pajamas? Find out when we come back. That concludes episode 149, Tip of the Sword. If you would like to see the sword that didn't travel with Coronado, go to kansasmemory.org, our online digital repository, or check out our website at kshs.org. Come back in two weeks when museum director Bob Keckeisen and me examine a print of General George Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Find out why Custer's complete military failure was immortalized in paintings and prints in almost every bar and saloon in America. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Museum of History. Real people, real stories. <laughs>